Hi, and welcome to Unsolved Mysteries of the World, where we explore the unexplained. Our topics include missing persons, UFO and aerial phenomenon, unsolved murders, lost treasures, cryptozoology, urban legends, conspiracies, ancient archaeological anomalies, and much more. If this is your first time listening to us and you like our show, remember to subscribe when you get a chance. Each episode, we will dive into a topic or case with an in-depth narrative and include special guest interviews where possible. This is Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 1, Episode 3, Code of the Dead, the Ricky McCormick Mystery. They say dead men tell no tales, but in the mysterious case of Ricky McCormick, this age-old pirate truth may not be correct, especially if you can help. Ricky McCormick went missing in June of 1999 when most folks were concerned over a technical glitch that was fast approaching as the calendar was entering the new millennium. Y2K was just around the corner, but this wasn't something Ricky McCormick was worried about. His life revolved around petty crime and meaningless jobs. Computers were complicated, and Ricky was simple. He didn't finish high school, and according to his family, his literary skills were very minimal at best. His mother, Frankie Sparks, described him as retarded. His cousin, Charles McCormick, who shared a brotherly relationship with Ricky for most of his life, says Ricky would often talk like he was in another world, and suspects Ricky might have suffered from schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. His aunt suggested that Ricky see a psychiatrist, which Ricky did, but he made no progress and it was said he was tired of being poor and lacking opportunity. Ricky, as in life, shuffled from job to job. He was employed as a dishwasher, a busboy, a janitor, and a service station attendant. The meager living was assisted by a disability pension Ricky collected for a heart condition. Often he would partake in petty crimes to boost his income and add excitement into his life. But soon, he found himself in serious trouble. In November 1992, St. Louis police arrested the 34-year-old McCormick for having fathered two children with a girl younger than 14 years old. McCormick had been sleeping with the girl since she was 11, according to court files, which protected the girl's identity. McCormick's mother and aunt knew the girl simply by her nickname, Pretty Baby. While awaiting trial on the first-degree sexual abuse charge, McCormick's public defender noted she had reasonable cause to believe McCormick was suffering from some mental disease or defect and requested that the judge order a mental health exam. Dr. Michael Amore, a local psychologist, evaluated McCormick at the former St. Louis State Hospital following Amore's report and a hearing. However, the court certified McCormick was fit for trial. Six weeks later, on September 1, 1993, McCormick pleaded guilty to the crime. State inmate 503-506 would spend 13 months behind bars in the Farmington Correctional Center. Upon his release, Ricky went back to finding odd jobs and took up working for an Amoco gas station in his old neighborhood. His life of petty crime soon turned more serious. Minutes before sunrise on June 15, 1999, about two weeks before his death, 
Ricky McCormick walked up to the counter at the Greyhound bus terminal downtown and purchased a one-way ticket to Orlando, Florida. It would turn out to be the last of at least two brief trips to Florida he made that year. Ricky rented room 280 at the Econo Lodge in Orlando and according to police met someone there for a very short period of time. Phone records show he made a flurry of calls to several people in Orlando and in the general area. Ricky also placed several short calls to his new girlfriend Sandra Jones in St. Louis and he made at least one call to the Moco gas station where he worked. Sandra Jones would later confess to police she suspected Ricky was involved in the drug trade. She told investigators Ricky would accept offers to pick up and deliver packages for cash. He made trips to Florida and brought marijuana into the apartment he shared with Jones in the Clinton Peabody housing project south of downtown. The drugs would usually be sealed in Ziploc bags rolled together into bundles the size of baseballs. She estimated the value to be in the tens of thousands of dollars. Ricky told his girlfriend he was holding the stashes of weed for Baha Hamdallah, a manager at the Moco gas station. Police suspected that Ricky McCormick was troubled during his last days and sought treatment in public hospitals to perhaps keep safe and off the streets. His physical condition was deteriorating and his mental state was described as frantic. Ricky seemed nervous and anxious about something, according to Sandra Jones, and she believes it had something to do with his boss, Baha Hamdallah. Baha Hamdallah, sometimes referred to as Bob, wasn't a typical gas station manager concerned about stocking shelves and keeping fuel prices competitive. He was the brother of Juma Hamdallah, a Palestinian immigrant who took over as president of the gas station from a family friend, Mr. Hamdan the original owner of the business. Mr. Hamdan had to relinquish the operation of the gas station because he found himself charged with first-degree murder when he butchered his neighbor in his front yard during an argument. Hamdan later died in Missouri's Potessi Correctional Center while serving a life sentence. The gas station, it seemed, attracted the worst characters. Younger brother Jamil Hamdala, who worked as a cashier, was a registered sex offender and known to be involved in minor drug trafficking. Baha was also known to police, but with a much greater track record of suspected murder, attempted murder, murder for hire, second degree assault, suspected drug trafficking, and so many other petty crimes. Baha was also suspected of murdering a witness to avoid an assault charge, and he always seemed to slip through the cracks and avoid prosecution. When asked directly by his girlfriend about Baha Hamdala, Ricky McCormick didn't want to talk about him or his recent trip to Orlando. Instead, he decided to visit his Aunt Gloria and hung out with her away from the Moco gas station and off the streets. Around 3 o'clock the afternoon of June 22, 1999, Ricky walked into the Barnes Jewish Hospital into the emergency room, complaining of chest pains and shortness of breath. He told doctors he had been smoking a package of cigarettes a day since he was 10 and usually drank about 20 caffeinated beverages a day. Doctors eased his symptoms and decided to admit him for two days' observation. Upon release with orders for a follow-up appointment, he took a bus to his aunt's house, deciding again not to go home. He chatted for a short while and then, according to his aunt, 
said he was going to walk home. The next day, he checked into the emergency room at Forest Park Hospital, less than two miles from the Barnes Jewish Hospital, complaining again of shortness of breath. Doctors evaluated him and said it was most likely another asthma flare-up, and he was subsequently released. This time, however, Ricky didn't go to his aunt's house, nor go home. He hung around the emergency department of the hospital until the very next day. Sandra Jones told police that she talked with Ricky on the phone in the late morning of June 26th. He told her he was out of the hospital and was on his way to the Moco gas station to get a bite to eat. At least one gas station employee told police he saw Ricky there the next day on June 27th. McCormick left the gas station with at most hours to live. Medical examiners determined he was definitely dead the same day. Ricky's body was spotted by a motorist driving along a rural route near Highway 367 in West Alton, Missouri, just north of St. Louis, and they immediately called police. Investigators approached the open area by the southeast corner of the cornfield between a field road and a densely foliated levee, which is an old railroad grade along the southbound side of the highway, to find a body face down, badly decomposed, and appearing as if it had suffered a trauma to the head. Police were suspicious and searched the area for a weapon, signs of a struggle, and perhaps a witness. They came back empty and treated the scene as a possible homicide, or were not jumping to conclusions just yet. They photographed the scene and took fingerprints of the deceased, which they revealed the dead man was 41-year-old Ricky McCormick. The St. Charles County Medical Examiner's Office said the cause and manner of death remained undetermined, even after an autopsy and a toxicology exam. Police were stumped why Ricky would have visited an agricultural area where no public transportation was available and no personal mode of transportation was found abandoned. Police were stumped. They had no cause of death. A body that appeared to have rapidly decomposed, more so than usual, and no one was raising any alarm bells that he was actually missing, let alone dead. Investigators later learned that the St. Louis police were investigating Gregory Knox, a major drug dealer who had operated in and around the housing complex where Ricky McCormick lived. Gregory Knox was a suspect in several homicides, including murder for hire crimes. Detectives learned about a confidential informant who told police that Knox was responsible for the murder of a black man who worked at a Moco gas station and whose body was dumped near West Alton. Detectives soon learned that Knox and the Hamdallas were working in the same drug circles and staked out several businesses and homes of each individual. No arrests were ever made, however. Knox found himself behind bars on charges of possession with intent to distribute crack cocaine and carrying a firearm. He was also suspected but not charged with at least four homicides in relation to the drug trade in Ricky's neighborhood. The following year, Baja Hamdala was managing another store, Charlie's Food Market in Madison, Illinois, when he got into an argument with a customer named Robert Steptoe. At the end of the argument, Baja shot the customer in the face, killing him instantly. In September 2002, a Madison County judge sentenced Hamdala to 38 years in prison for killing Steptoe. 
Four years later, however, an Illinois appellate court ruled Hamdella's lawyer erred by not calling a gunshot residue expert to testify in person in the shooting case. The appellate court granted a retrial, and in the second trial, the jury bought Hamdala's claims of self-defense and his version of events in which the gun went off while he and Steptoe were struggling for control of the pistol. Hamdala was a free man and resettled in Cleveland, Ohio. Knox served out his sentence. In 2013, he was set free. He has denied any involvement in the Ricky McCormick death. Ricky's body was laid to rest in an unmarked grave. Police never gave up on this cold case. They had a lead, a mysterious lead, one that would stump not only their own investigators, but the top minds in the FBI. For 12 years, they sat on this crucial piece of evidence, and in 2011, they finally released it to the public and asked for help in solving the mystery of Ricky McCormick. FBI released details and photos about two cryptic notes found in Ricky's pocket. The notes appear to be a cipher of some sort, and law enforcement is hoping someone may be able to crack the code, or at least give them clues as to what the notes are referencing. They believe this piece of evidence may open the case and lead them to solving this murder. Yes, murder. Police also released new information that Ricky was murdered, shot with a small caliber handgun to the head. Dan Olson, chief of the FBI's Cryptanalysis and Racketeering Records Unit, the CRRU, urged potential codebreakers to send in their tips, and they were flooded with phone calls, emails, and letters. None of the codebreakers could ultimately crack the code or decipher what was written, and to this day, it still remains unsolved. Possible terms found in the garbled code include automobile VIN numbers, hospital terminology, the name Seth, circuit board serial numbers, or even medications. One suggestion is the coded letters were reminders for Ricky to take medications, perhaps related to his depression or bipolar disorder. Others believe the notes were McCormick's version of shorthand, chock full of abbreviations, acronyms, and homonyms, and not an encrypted message, which could explain why applying cryptographic techniques would not reveal anything significant. And whether or not the code leads to answers about his death, the FBI officials say they would like to see it broken. Even if we found out that he was writing a grocery list or a love letter, we would still want to see how the code is solved, Mr. Olson said. This is a cipher system we know nothing about. Detective Michael Yarbrough said Ricky's mother Frankie Sparks said that her son had written in a secret language since he was a child, but she had never understood it either. Later, she is on record saying, quote, The only thing he could write was his name. He didn't write in no code. They told us only the thing in his pocket was an emergency room ticket. Now, 12 years later, they come back with this chicken scratch shit, end quote. Brother Charles McCormick recalls Ricky, quote, couldn't spell anything. He could just scribble, end quote. So who wrote the notes? What do they mean? Or are they a red herring in one of the FBI's most frustrating and unsolved murder cases? According to the FBI, they believe the notes in Ricky's pockets were written up to three days before his death. This in itself is a clue. 
How would investigators know this unless they have cracked some of the messages on the notes? At the end of one of the notes is the code D-W underscore M-Y and four question mark and an M and H question mark and I A P question mark L X D R L X. Could it represent D as in day, W as in week, M as in month, and Y in year? But what are the rest of the code? Well, perhaps dead men do tell tales. If you would like to take a shot at figuring out what the notes represent, visit our Facebook page. Just search Unsolved Mysteries of the World. Perhaps you can solve this case and end this unsolved mystery. Share your thoughts with us, and if you do make some headway, send your information to FBI Laboratory, 2501 Investigation Parkway, Quantico, Virginia, 22135. And mark on your envelope, attention, Ricky McCormick case. They'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to Unsolved Mysteries of the World. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or your other favorite podcast directory, and subscribe, rate, and review. We would really appreciate your support. If you haven't already, join us on Facebook to enhance this episode with photos, illustrations, and lively discussion. Look for our suggested links and do share this podcast with others. Perhaps you or someone you know will have a solution to this mystery. This podcast is created by Cold Rasta Studios and includes music and sound effects by John Savoy, Albert Ray, Gerardo Garcia Jr., Rana Szilard, Madia Capelli, Alex Lisi, Martin Kahlberg, and Adrian von Ziegler.